What, <clears throat> what did Jesus say about your death? What if you had been the one sending Jesus a message that your brother, a dear, dear friend of Jesus, was seriously ill? What would you say to him when Jesus arrived four days late? What would you say if you knew that he purposely delayed his coming? What would you say? That happened to this family that Jesus dearly loved. You know the story. We looked at the first scene of this play last week. Martha probably discovered later from one of the disciples that Jesus had actually been waiting until after Lazarus died. He had been waiting purposely for that to happen before he arrived. If you had been Martha, you might have said what she said. Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, she might have been saying that in an accusatory way. Where have you been? Couldn't you have gotten here sooner? But she probably did not know that Jesus had intentionally delayed his arrival. Actually, this, instead of being an accusatory statement, could have been a confession of faith. You're the Messiah. I know if you had been here, you would have done for my brother what you did for so many others. You would have miraculously healed him if you had been here. She went on to add a sentence that does indeed demonstrate her faith. Look at verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I know, Jesus, you can do something about this. Even though my brothers, you can still do something about this. We were not, the point is, we weren't there to hear the inflection of her voice. We weren't there to hear the tone in which these words were said. We do know that Jesus responded with words of comfort. He did not rebuke her. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother, Martha, your brother will rise again. Now, her response is far more important and significant than you would think. Martha said to him, verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This lady believed in a resurrection at the end time. She believed in the resurrection and everlasting life. Now, why is that so important? That she made that statement. 
Modern, modern theological liberals, liberals who don't teach the gospel, modern theological liberals teach that in the Old Testament that you don't find any concept of the resurrection. You don't find any concept of everlasting life. In fact, they dwell on this. I was sitting in a class in seminary. It was my first year. It was a class in Old Testament history. The internationally known professor had spent an hour going through the Old Testament, proving that believers living in that period had no concept of everlasting life, had no concept of the resurrection. The chalkboard, this large chalkboard across the front of this large classroom was filled with notes proving, written during the hour, proving his position. Near the end of the hour, a very nerdy-looking friend of mine, you know, that had on the black frame glasses. I mean, if he walked in that door right now, he's almost my age now, you would say, the guy's a nerd. You know, it was just that way. He was not the type. He raised his hand. He was not the type to go head-to-head -head with a professor of this stature. He was merely asking a question. Professor, what about Job 19, verses 25 to 27? And the professor said, well, what does it say? And he read it. For I know, it's on your scripture sheet, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not as a stranger. Now there's the resurrection, and there's the everlasting life in the book of Job. Most scholars, and I'm sure this man did, most scholars believe the book of Job to be one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. And right there, we see Scripture teaching the resurrection and eternal life. That professor did not respond. He looked at his board. He looked back at the class. He turned around. And, I mean, this board would have covered this wall. And he began to erase the whole thing. And then just before the bell rang, he left the room with no comment. He didn't have an answer because it's there and it's all through the Old Testament. You know these words, Psalm 23, verses 4 and 6. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever, ever. The book of Daniel, the 12th chapter, 
Look at it on your scripture sheet. Verses 1 through 4 and then 13. God is closing out what he's saying to Daniel. And he says this. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting death. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn and those who turn many to righteousness, they'll shine like stars forever and ever. And in verse 13, but go your way, Daniel, to the end, and you shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. We can go to other passages, but the point has been made. Martha believed in the resurrection and everlasting life. By the way, so did the Pharisees. Where did they learn it? They learned it from the Old Testament. So now, how does Martha answer Jesus? I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. What did Jesus say to her? As they have this profound, strong conversation about her brother's death. We've heard Jesus say in the last few weeks, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. All of those statements made by Jesus were powerful claims to be the Messiah of Israel. But this takes it to another level. This is the most astounding claim. Martha, I am the resurrection. He didn't say, I teach about the resurrection. He didn't say, you've really spoken a truth. That's going to happen. We both know that. He didn't say, I teach. I know about it. He said, I am the resurrection. Let's look at it. Look at the verses. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now first note that he doesn't just say, I am the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I'm bringing a life. In those verses, he says, I'm bringing a life that will never die. A life that cannot be extinguished. When do we receive eternal life? When Jesus returns? When he comes back? Is that when we get eternal life? Look at John 6, 47. Truly, truly, 
I say to you, and whenever he said truly, truly, he's saying, this is important. Listen up. I say to you, whoever believes has. He doesn't say will have. He says has right now eternal life. Think about that. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, if you're a sinner who says that cross is my only hope, that Jesus died for my sins, I believe he's the son of God, I believe he came from glory, I believe he's coming again. If that's your faith, if you're a Christian right now, seated where you are, you have eternal, you have eternal life. It's something you possess right now. He makes a strange statement. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. He has a life that shall live on. This person who has eternal life has a life that even though he physically or she physically dies, they live on. Let's break that down. He says, whoever. He's not speaking of Lazarus here. He says, whoever. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, right here at this point then, he's speaking to you. He's speaking about you. He's speaking about your death. He's speaking about your funeral. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the resurrection? Now, we always just jump to the end, the end of time, and Jesus comes back, and there's this great resurrection. But there's far, far more than that. There are incredible antecedents to that. There are three ways that Jesus is a resurrection. First, he resurrects us from spiritual deadness to a life in Christ. <clears throat> we read about this just a few weeks ago. In fact, we made note of it in John 5, 25. Look at it. I'll tell you the truth. The time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Who are the dead who will hear the voice of the Son of God and live? Jesus is not speaking here in this verse of those who have physically died and whom he's going to raise at the end of time. He's speaking here of a spiritual resurrection of the heart. Jesus is saying, this is not something for the future. Look at the verse. He says, this is what's happening right now. Men and women, boys and girls are hearing my voice and their dead hearts are coming to life. We could stand up and, and give out, each of us, if I, we said, when did you become a Christian? When did you first hear the gospel? How did you first understand that you were a sinner that needed a Savior? That Christ was the Son of God, came from glory for this specific purpose. 
There was a point in time when you heard the voice of Christ, when I heard the voice of Christ, and we responded. Something happened. There's a deadness of soul. There's a deadness of soul that is much worse than physical death. Men worry much more about physical death than they do the spiritual death that already is inside of them. There was a day in history that all of mankind died. The day that man rebelled against his creator, men became dead men walking. We think about sin sickness, that, that there's a sickness in us called sin. The Bible doesn't say that we're sick with sin. The Bible doesn't even say we're dying of sin. The Bible says we're dead in our sins. Look at it on your scripture sheet at Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 and verse 4. We've looked at this so many times at Christ's press. And you were, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now he's speaking to Ephesians. He's speaking to Christians in Ephesus. These are people sitting in church like you're sitting this morning. How does Paul begin? And you were dead in your past. You were dead in your sins. I'll read on down now. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now look, skip down to verse 4. But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's a resurrection. You were spiritually dead and he made you alive. When you're dead, you're helpless. Nothing you can do. When I realized this for the first time, I was already a Christian. But my theology changed completely. There was a point in my life where I knew I was a sinner. But I didn't know I'd been dead. I, I thought there was enough of a spark in me, enough of God in me, to reach out and please God and do this on my own. The Bible says John Sartell was dead and helpless. My father was a minister. I was still dead. My soul was lifeless toward God. George Whitfield. Wow. One of the greatest preachers. He used to play a game with several fellows and say, what preacher more than any other would you like to hear today? And we couldn't say Jesus. It had to be someone. Well, Whitfield is really high on my list. This man could preach in an open field like this, right out here, to 25,000 people. Ben Franklin loved George Whitfield. When George Whitfield came to America to preach, he stayed with Ben Franklin. 
And Ben Franklin liked the scientific aspect of things. And he was just amazed. He said, you can stand on the outside of a crowd of 25,000 people and hear George Whitfield whisper. But Whitfield, in talking about the subject of being raised from your spiritual deadness of your heart, Whitfield, in one of his sermons, compared it to Jesus raising Lazarus. Now, in seminary and homiletics, they tell you, don't read long paragraphs to your congregation. They just get lost. I do it anyway. Uh, and so just bear with it. I think you will find this profound. I keep this where I can see it. Here's the quote. This is George Whitfield preaching. So for a moment, I'm Whitfield. I'm quoting him. Come, ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners, come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, locked up and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go near to him. Do not be afraid. Was he bound hand and foot with grave clothes? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruptions. And as a stone was laid on the sepulcher, so there's a stone of unbelief upon the ignorant soul. Perhaps thou hast laid in this state not only four days, but for many years, stinking in God's nostrils. And what is still more affecting, thou art unable to raise thyself out of this loathsome dead state to a life of righteousness and true holiness as Lazarus was unable to raise himself from the cave in which he lay so long. Thou mayest try the power of thine own boasted free will and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments, but all thy efforts exerted with ever so much vigor will prove fruitless and abortive until that same Jesus who said, Lazarus, come out, also bids your own heart to rise from its deadness and come forth into the world to love you. End quote. What was Whitfield saying? It's our first point. It's the point of this passage. Jesus resurrects us from the spiritual deadness of life. That's the first way. That he said that that's the first reason he said, I am the resurrection. Secondly, Jesus resurrects us from physical death to the to glory to glory the moment we physically die. The moment we physically die, Jesus raises up, raises us to glory. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? When he expressed faith, when he said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did he say? Say it with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not a thousand years from now. Not when I raise you physically from the dead. Today you will be with me in paradise. When, that, when the body of that thief was dead on the cross, think about this. When, it was, when he was dead on the cross, and that body was dead on the cross, that thief 
was already home in glory. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus raised him from that awful, cruel death to the glory of heaven. This is certainly the teaching of the New Testament. Jesus made an incredible statement when he claimed to be the resurrection and life while speaking to Martha and her brother. Lazarus had died. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Our physical bodies will surely die, just like Lazarus did. But our souls continue to live. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. He said, we're of good courage. We have courage. So much courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, Paul really meant that. Paul really meant that. I'd rather be home with the Lord. Now, with that in mind, let's read Revelation. And he raises us at our death to heaven, to glory. Let's read Revelation 20, verse 4, in light of that. Stick with me. This is huge. Those of you who saw this in our class in Revelation, uh, you know what is about to be said. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power. and They will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for that thousand years. When it says a thousand years here, we, those of you that have been in this study know that it's referring to the period. The thousand years is just symbolic of a long time. And it's what takes place between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Notice, he says, he saw their souls. He didn't say, I saw their resurrected bodies. He didn't see their bodies. They hadn't been resurrected yet. They were home in glory. These were saints during that time who died. They hadn't been marked by the unbelief of the world, the marks of Satan. And they're the followers of Christ. Some of them are martyrs. Some of them weren't martyrs. But they belonged to Christ. So, he resurrects us. He's the resurrection of the life. Why? Because he resurrects us from the spiritual dead to a life in Christ. He's the resurrection of life because he res resurrects us from physical death at the moment we die to glory. And thirdly, he will resurrect 
our physical bodies on that great day when he returned. Look at verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his, man, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. It's very simple. After his conversation with Martha, he said, Here, I'll prove my point. He goes to a tomb, rolls back the stone, and he says, Lazarus, come out of there. Wow. What he did that day is only a microcosm of what he will do when he returns. Wow. Can you imagine his voice on that day? So what does Jesus say about your death, my death, our deaths this morning? If we believe in him, he's raised us from the deadness of our souls. Sometime, somewhere, we heard his voice. He gave us ears to hear and hearts to receive him. He raised us to a new, a new life, a new way of living, a new way of thinking. We're still discovering the wonders of this new life. <clears throat> if he does not return first, he will meet us in the valley of the shadow of death. He'll meet us on our deathbed, and he'll raise us to glory. You know, Jesus raised that thief on the cross twice, the same day. He raised him from the deadness of his soul and raised him to glory. This, ma this message this week powerfully, powerfully affected me. I have a great desire to look at my approaching death like Paul did. To be able to say sincerely, to live as Christ, to die, it's game. It really is game. I want to be like I was in grade school. You children know what I'm talking about. Ever, you know what I'm talking about. When I was in grade school, the last day of school was always the best day of school. We didn't go to class that day to get tested or to learn anything. We went to school that day to party. Why did we party? Because we were thinking back and celebrating the, the past year in that classroom and all we had learned? No. No. That wasn't happening. We were celebrating a wonderful summer without school. I want to look at death and know that I am headed for a glorious, never-ending summer. Do your worst, death. Do your worst. Christ is about to raise me to glory. Some of you will probably stand by my grave 
I want you to do me a favor. I want you to say something like this. John, you're in glory now with Christ. But Jesus is not finished yet. You probably miss your body right now. But one day, one day soon, John, Jesus will give you a new one, one fit for eternity. I'll leave this cemetery smiling today because, John, I'll either see you again then or maybe sooner if the Lord tarries. Amen. Our hymn is 358. We're seeing stanzas one, two, five, and six. Let's stand together as we sing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said,